1 Samuel 4, beginning at verse 1. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they had joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli, sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Amen. Father God, we come to You. It is our desire that we would learn to tremble at Your Word, that we would learn daily to be sanctified by Your Word. And I pray that You would take the feebleness of of a human uh, speaker and that You would cause Your Spirit to quicken the Word to each one of our lives, that we might grow, that we might glorify You, that we might be edified and encouraged in Your most holy faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. may be seated. In my devotions this past Wednesday, I was up in Luke 9, and this was the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John went up the mountain... And they saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking with each other, and it's like they glowed. There was a whiteness about them. We call it a transfiguration of Jesus. And Peter is so overwhelmed with this mountaintop experience, he doesn't want it to go away. So he says, oh, let's make this permanent. Let's make tabernacles for each of these three. And it says he doesn't even know what he's talking, you know, but... God rebukes him, 
And God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. God wanted the disciples to be basing their lives on Christ's words, not on mountaintop experiences. And years later, Peter remembers this. When he writes 1 Peter chapter 1, he's trying to keep these people from going off into false doctrine, into many problems uh, based on experience. And he says, look, I've had great experiences too. And he says, uh, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Then he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy which you do well to heed. He says the scriptures that uh, the church is, is listening to are infinitely superior to any experiences that you, might, that you might have. And then he goes on to talk about the sufficiency of scripture. Well, that in a nutshell is God's call for us to not be constantly longing for and pining for and seeking after mountaintop experiences and instead to allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the through the scriptures uh, revivalism is caught up in experience whereas revival and reformation is always characterized by going back to the scriptures back to the bible now today is reformation day and as you know i like to preach on this every single year because we are in desperate need of reformation and i'm convinced that the greatest enemy to reformation is not the evil that is in the world out there. And the greatest enemy of reformation is not the evil that is within the church. Many of us reformed people believe that the greatest enemy to reformation is a counterfeit within the church of Jesus Christ called revivalism. Not revival, but revivalism. Now, they'll call it revival. Uh, but uh, they look to things like emotional highs and being slain in the spirit ecumenical unity, intense worship, um, flamboyant preaching that really gets your adrenaline pumping. They'll look to things like that as evidences. God is in our midst and uh, the tough slogging of God's soldiers through the muddy fields is not glamorous. But that really is at the heart of revival and of reformation. Revivalists want a constant high of celebration, but in my view, there's nothing to celebrate if we're not being transformed by the Word of God. You see, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos all had people who were experiencing the kinds of things that you see going on in revivalism today. And God was telling them, that's not really revival. In fact, God said their intense worship that was fresh, it was enthusiastic, was actually a stench in His nostrils. In Isaiah 1, God described their fancy and enthusiastic worship services and He said this, My soul hates them. I am weary of bearing them. Why? It's obvious when you read the context, this was quality worship. This was great singing, great instrumentation. Why did he say that he hates them? He said this, I cannot endure iniquity. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. In other words, he was rejecting their revivalism and he was saying what you really need to be pursuing is reformation of life. In Ezekiel 33, verses 30 through 33, the people loved to come to worship. They loved to hear the preaching of Ezekiel. They had an intense emotional commitment to God. They were going through the equivalent of blogging and twittering each other and saying to each other, quote, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord, verse 30. I mean, what preacher would not be thrilled with that? And you know what? Ezekiel was initially thrilled and God says, look, do not be excited about that. That is not revival. Do not be excited about that. Like modern sermon junkies, these guys were listening to the best of the best sermons on their Apple iPods and God saying, Ezekiel, do not get excited about this. Let me read the next verse. So they come to you as my people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Here are these people. I mean, oh, they just love worshiping God. But he says their hearts are far from God. He goes on, Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. In other words, you're not going to the greatest concerts, you know, these guys could go to. They love coming to worship. 
But he says, they hear your words, but they do not do them. If you read the prophets with an eye to the difference between revivalism and reformation, you'll begin to realize those prophets are incredibly relevant to the needs of today. In Amos, God was not the least bit pleased with the revivalism happening there. Now, the people are enthusiastic. The pastors are very happy. Money's coming in. The people are satisfied with the church. It's growing during a time of great difficulty. But God says this, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. In other words, he's saying, I'm not the least bit interested in revivalism. What I want is genuine revival. And even beyond that, I want reformation. I want reformation. And with strong statements like that that you find strewn throughout the Bible, we need to be very careful what we long for. There are people who are longing for something that they think is a genuine Christianity. God is describing the exact thing they long for and saying, that's not what your heart should be going after. Now, how many here have ever eaten Lucky Charms cereal? Okay, a bunch of you have eaten that. This is the one that, um, you know, had the jingle Lucky Charms. They're magically delicious. Now, how many here who raised your hands actually like Lucky Charms cereal? Whoa, am I ever in trouble? <laughs> now, it is pretty sweet. It gives you a quick sugar high, you know. And the risk of my neck being wrung by some of you sugar bomb junkies. <laughs> I think it takes magic to make uh, sugar-coated styrofoam taste good. But um, <laughs> I think it takes um, uh, something more than reality to make Lucky Charms a multi-million dollar bestseller. Now, it is sweet. And it, so it definitely attracts anybody's sweet buds. And it has clever advertising and packaging. In fact, the packaging was so good that when my kids were younger, when we were go through, going through the grocery store, man, they knew. They knew they liked that. They'd never tasted it before. We, we're going to like that, Dad. They knew it. And, and the reason for it is because there's, such, there's a context. There's packaging, expectations. There's the sugar highs that people want to perpetuate. It has a powerful impact on people's lives. And I think it is packaging, context, proverbial sugar highs that have made people think that they're experiencing God at one moment and they're not experiencing God at another moment. Now, I'll admit, there is a degree of subjectivity in terms of experiencing the presence of God, but we live in a day and age when there is so much sugar-coated styrofoam being effectively marketed through radio and CDs and concerts and iTunes and the churches that people feel like they're missing out if they don't have emotional highs, if they don't have, you know, this delightful rapture, this snap, crackle, pop in their Christianity, right? Uh, they feel sub-Christian even though God may be very pleased with what they are doing because God sees these guys are foot soldiers slogging it out through the mud and through the grime. And they're feeling, oh, what is wrong with me? That I don't have the, the, the constant emotional highs these other people have. Surely there's something wrong with me. And God says, no, I love you, brother and sister. I love you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're foot soldiers who are doing the hard work of getting out there. And for the same reason, other Christians may feel like all is well with their soul, even though they're in rebellion against God, because why? They're going from one spiritual high experience to another spiritual high. They're not paying attention to God's admonition. This is my beloved son. Hear him, exclamation mark. Listen to him. But people are flagrantly ignoring God's word, and they feel quite fine because they got the sugar high. Okay? And I think this is a great, great passage for describing the vaccine of revivalism that inoculates people and makes them impervious to the need for reformation in their lives. And I think it's time that the church ditched revivalism and said yes to revival, but even more so, said yes to reformation, culture-changing reformation. So just briefly, let me distinguish between true revival and reformation. Revival is a wonderful thing. I've prayed for revival many, many times in my own life. And what revival is doing 
is it's realigning our motives, our desires, our actions, our thinking to what God had established in our lives before. It's looking back to the good old times. And so what many people are looking for in America is a revival of the good old times with American institutions, right? Now, in one sense, that's good. I'd much rather have that than to have what we're having presently in America. It'd be, oh, it'd be wonderful if we could go back to the intense uh, love for Jesus that they had in the 16 and 1700s here uh, in America. But the New Covenant calls us to expect so much more than revival and looking back to the good old days. It calls us to have a forward-looking that enters into everything that God has prophesied in His Word. Now, some of those prophecies almost seem impossible. Reformation takes real faith to expect. Uh, Let me just give you some impossibilities. Um, Well, before I do that, let me me give you a little bit more background. Reformation has everything that revival has, but it adds two more things. So it's revival plus. The first thing that it has is that all God's believers during a Reformation They've got such a paradigm shift in their thinking that they are not satisfied until every area of their thinking has been taken captive to King Jesus, and that's in every area of thought. Secondly, uh, Reformation is not satisfied with old institutions being repaired. They don't just want the old wineskins. They want new wineskins. They want to be pressing into everything that God's Word says is eventually going to be happening on planet Earth. And I think Andrew Sandlin describes this difference well when he says this. Revival and reformation are not to be equated. Revival is a stirring of apathetic saints. Reformation is an alteration of their very spiritual core. Revival is a sovereign, gratuitous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Reformation is a revision of the very heart of religion, a conscious effort to make a full-scale break with all that is unscriptural and to reinstall Scripture as the final authority of belief and practice. The effects of revival are temporary. Those of Reformation span centuries. Revival makes better Christians. Reformation makes a better Christianity. Revival makes Christians more zealous, Reformation makes them more knowledgeable. Revivals occur spasmodically. The work of Reformation is never completed. Now, if you want one verse that summarizes what a Reformation is all about, it's Revelation 14.4 where it says, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. They're wanting to follow King Jesus into that upward calling that God has given to us uh, in Him. And so Reformation thinking refuses to think like this. Having a radically Christian politics is impossible, so we need to compromise. Right? It refuses to think, okay, having a, a biblically consistent denomination, that's impossible. So we're going to put up with all kinds of error in the denomination. It refuses to think, you know, having my kids stand on my shoulders and go beyond where we've been able to go That's ridiculous. That's impossible. So we're not going to have those expectations of our children. No, it's constantly pressing into everything that Jesus has given to us in His Word. It wants to see every square inch of planet Earth under His feet. It wants to see Him lifted up in every area of life. It wants to see all institutions bowing before King Jesus. And so I think we need to start saying no to revivalism, say yes to revival, but to be passionate passionate for reformation that should be our heart's cry okay now you've got your topical sermon now we're going to go into the exegetical sermon back in uh, first samuel and uh, in first samuel 1 through 7 you see israel moving from revivalism to revival and then on in chapter 7 to the greatest reformation that israel would have for another 370 years to the time of josiah when incredible reformation uh, happened in his day Flip back to chapter 2, and uh, let's look at verse 12. We're going to be looking at how bad things were back in their day. And I think you're going to find this a very encouraging sermon, uh, that even though things are bad today, uh, we can expect great things from God. Okay, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. 
Now, they profess to know God. After all, they're pastors, right? Pastors are supposed to represent God. But it says they were corrupt. They did not know God. And it was a desperately evil situation uh, that was occurring in the time of Samuel. Desperate need for reformation. But reformation seemed impossible. How many years had had the church been corrupt? For quite a while. How many years had its pastors not known God? It was really for quite a while. And uh, they were pursuing other things. And in the case of these pastors, they were definitely not listening to God's Son speaking through the Scriptures. Look at verse 13. You can see an abuse of office here. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now what was happening is they were robbing people of what was rightfully theirs. The priest was only supposed to get the the right breast and thigh. That's all he was supposed to get. All the rest was to be offered to the Lord and to be eaten by the worshiper. But they were taking more than their fair share. And I see this happening all across America. Ministers who preach against tithing. And you think, oh good, they're not very... Greedy. They're preaching against time. No, they want you to give 10% only. What's wrong with you? You need to mortgage your house to pay for the church building that we're going for. You need to be planting a seed of faith in my life by giving us a thousand dollars and God will pour back into your life so much more. It's always made me chuckle that these guys never plant seeds of life into your life. Seeds of, you know, why don't they give $1,000 to you if it works so well? But no, they're wanting their $6,000 suits, a whole wardrobe full of them, and they're taking advantage financially of the people. Verse 15, Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. Now, this is wrong on three counts. First of all, they were not supposed to eat any fat whatsoever. 100% of the fat was supposed to go to the Lord. Secondly, they were only, they were not supposed to take anything from what was sacrificed, but they were doing that. And then thirdly, they were not supposed to take anything for themselves until after uh, the sacrifice had happened. So what's going on here is their ecclesiology is messed up. Ecclesiology is just a fancy term for how the church is supposed to function, okay? So they're not looking to the Word of God. Uh, They're just uh, making things up as they go along. Verse 16, And if the man said to them, him, They should really burn the fat first. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer them, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. No accountability, financially or socially, of these pastors. They did their own thing, and if you didn't like it, well, you can just lump it. You can go elsewhere if you don't like it, okay? Verse 17, Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Very, very bad situation. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Do we have sexual immorality among the clergy today? Absolutely, yes, we do. Do do we have a situation where people despise the law of God? Yes, we do. In fact, things have gotten so bad that many people just despise the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. And so things are extremely bad, and it it appeared that things were as unlikely to result in Reformation back then as they are today. Now, a second thing that we see in these verses is that God was preparing the way for Reformation by strategically putting people into strategic places. And chapter 1 describes one family, Elkanah, who's a representative of the faithful remnant. And then in verse 19, it talks about the conception of Samuel. And then it goes on to show how God protected Samuel from this perverse age. And chapter 2 shows how he strategically placed Samuel in a place of influence. And then chapter 3 shows how the foundation of God's Word was beginning to get back into the church where it had been missing for so many years. So God, all through this time, is preparing the way for Reformation, but no Reformation has happened yet. No revival has happened yet. And I see God doing exactly the same thing in our own age. He has not left the church without witness. I'm encouraged 
that there are more leaders today with a heart's cry and passion for reformation than we have had in a long, long time. And there's more culture-changing literature that's being produced today than there ever has been uh, before. And so God is placing key people in key places, and I think He's preparing the way for a, a mighty move. Otherwise, why would He be putting these people in their strategic places? To me, this is very, very encouraging news. The, these are people, there's a remnant who is willing to come down from the, uh, the mountaintop experiences and go through the tough slogging of going through the fields as God's military. Okay? They're willing to say, I'm not about comfort. I'm about seeing God's cause advanced. I'm not about getting patted on the back and encouraged all the time. I'm about seeing His cause advanced. And so you see these kinds of patterns in history. Now, one of the patterns you also see is prior to Reformation, you're going to see an incredible, an incredible um, uh, discipline of God's people happening. And I think this is coming up. There's a discipline that happens here, and we're going to be seeing incredible discipline of the church economically. But all of that is God's loving hand. It's His loving hand of discipline. Well, chapter 4 describes the severe discipline. God not only kills the liberal pastors, but He kills 30,000 people of Israel. That is an incredible slaughter when you think about it. Here's the reason. Why does God allow this? He is more interested in truth than in perpetuating the comfort of a compromised church. To Him, it's more worth it that 30,000 people die and that you get a holy church than that the church have peace and you have lack of holiness. He's more interested in reformation than revivalism. Now, one question that people sometimes have is why did God punish the people when it's the priest's sins that he's describing? Well, I think the implication is you have the leaders that you are. Okay? The leaders reflect the people. They could have kicked these people out of office, and so the people are apathetic. And uh, there's hints in this passage that because of the way that the leaders were acting, it's actually causing the people themselves to transgress. Take a look, for example, at verse 24. Their father complained, No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. And this is exactly what is happening in revivalistic uh, America. Uh, Their faulty views of grace and law and, you know, freedom... Uh, has almost guaranteed that members are going to transgress against God's law. Let me just give you one example. During the late 1800s through the early 1900s, it was almost axiomatic that you would have a whole rash of illegitimate children nine uh, nine months after a revival camp meeting had happened. Okay? It's It's documented everywhere. It was just incredible immorality that went on. That is just one indicator of the huge difference between revivalism, which is just emotionalism, and genuine revival and genuine reformation. And I'm especially conscious of verse 25, where after Eli rebukes his sons for their sins, it says, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, try to reconcile that statement with the modern views of grace that are being pawned off and even Reformed churches. God desired to kill them. He wanted to kill them. God was present in that battle to kill these people. That's what it's saying. Now, that is so different from the pitiful conception of God in so much modern Christianity. But you know what? I don't lose hope because this is all part of what God's going to do to bring reformation to His church. And if He could do it back then, He can certainly do it today. Now, the first thing God does was to restore a bold preaching of the whole counsel of God and an application of His Word to all of life. And let's start with chapter 3 and uh, verse 19. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. So it's God's Word and God's presence. Those two have got to be combined. Now it says, none of his prophetic words fell to the ground. To me, that means it was infallible. It was inerrant, totally to be trusted. What he said uh, actually came to pass. But in addition to having the Bible, because he not only preached the Pentateuch and gave oral uh, testimony, but he also wrote the books of uh, uh, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. 
Uh, so it, not only does he give the word of God, but it says God was with him, was with him. Both word and power are essential. So I am not one of those naysayers who believes we just have doctrine without experience. <laughs> not at all. With Moses, I pray to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. I know too well that without Christ, I can do nothing. And so it's a false dilemma to say you either have to have revivalism or dry, dusty theology. No, not at all. Paul said it is word and power. Okay? James says it's word and deed. John 7:17 7, speaks of doctrine and doing God's will. Both of those have got to be held together. We're never going to have reformation in our land. And they were held together in Samuel. They were held together in the remnant. Now, chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then on into chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So as I said, he not only gave oral revelation, he wrote some books of the Bible. And Reformation preaching was happening everywhere. Now here, here's the interesting thing. As we move through this chapter, we realize, yeah, Reformation preaching is happening, but the people don't seem to be too interested in it. They're definitely not being transformed by it. No revival is happening. Definitely no Reformation is happening. And this is always the way it is. It begins with people preaching and nothing happening. You look at revival and Reformation after Reformation, you see this happening. And I believe one of the reasons for that is that God wants to make it crystal clear we can't produce revival. We cannot produce reformation. Now, you can produce revivalism. Charles Finney told you exactly how to do it, step by step. You can produce emotionalism, uh, but you cannot produce revival. You cannot produce reformation. And uh, I, I think it's a very important point to keep in our mind. Reformation and revival is a sovereign work of God's grace. And I don't think ordinarily the church is open to Reformation preaching. Why? Because they've been so used to eating chocolate-covered sugar bombs or Lucky Charms, okay? And uh, people in Samuel's early days, what they wanted is a God who would do what they wanted, not a Christianity that did what God wanted. That was their heart's cry, their heart's desire. So why do they have such confidence when they're going into battle? They obviously think God's going to be fighting on their side. Well, I think in part it was because Samuel was clearly a man of God. And Samuel's in our midst. Look at all of the miracles that Samuel's doing. You know, God's with us. And uh, we ought to be able to go into battle with confidence. But it was confidence in Samuel, who was a man, not a linking of word and power in their lives. And here's an admonition I would give to you. as just a side note. It's so easy to have a second-hand relationship with God. It's so easy to be thrilled with the reality of God in other people's lives, to get all choked up in a sermon when you hear a story of what God is doing in other people's lives, or to, to hear it on you know the radio, or, or to read it in a missionary biography, and it makes you realize, God is real. This is so cool. I love these stories. God is real. But you don't have the Word and power linked in your own life. Okay, so it's a second-hand knowledge. And I think that's sort of what was going on here. They lived in an atmosphere of realizing the reality of God, but they themselves were walking in rebellion against Him. And I don't care. If you're in rebellion against God, I don't care how small that rebellion may be. You do not yet have revival. You do not yet have reformation. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel... Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, this defeat was a direct result of their disobedience to God, and they don't get it. They think everything's okay, and they're disappointed in God. You know, we've gone trusting God. We've gone into this battle, you know, knowing that God's on our side and God's let us down. It's very easy for people to become disillusioned with God as a result of their false expectations. And I think there's a lot of this disillusionment that's happened in the evangelical church. Now, in verse 3, they ask the right question. 
They ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? There's a lot that is right about that question. Okay, they, they've got their covenant theology right. They know that there is, a, that there is blessing and there is cursing. They're not like modern evangelicals who blame everything bad on the devil. No, they say this is God, right? Uh, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? And it's a good question, and I think it's a question that the evangelical church of today needs to be asking. Why have we, over the last 100 years, had battle after battle lost to the Philistines? Why are we losing these battles? It's not because of our lack of effort. You know, it's not because we lack men's uh, ministries, women's ministries, children's ministries, evangelistic outreaches, you know, small groups, uh, innumerable other programs that are out there. There's been a number of writers who have said that the American church in the last 100 years has spent more money on more programs, more quality training of leaders than we have ever done in any other period of history, and we've had less impact upon the world than any other period of history. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. We're trying just as hard as these soldiers were to fight their battles against the Philistines. So they're asking the right question. Why is the Lord fighting against the church in America? Which He obviously is. But their answer is wrong. Instead of looking to the Bible for what's wrong about their relationship with God, they found it easier to take the lucky charm way. They're orthodox in their theology, and yet they're still trying to manipulate uh, God the pagan way. Okay, let's pick up partway through verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hands of the enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They were scheduling God to show up in their battle just like modern evangelicals schedule revivals. Okay? They schedule God to show up in a revival. And like I said earlier, you can schedule an emotional happening, but you cannot schedule a true revival. You can petition God, Lord, bring revival, but you can't say, okay, Tuesday, uh, 7 o'clock in the evening, we're going to have a revival meeting. No, you can't say that. Uh, God cannot be carried around on our shoulders or on our plans like a lucky charm or a talisman. Too many Christians treat God like an Aladdin's lamp. God's just there for our convenience. We need to realize that all is of grace, including His presence. And if you have found yourself manipulating God in various ways, what you need is a good dose of His sovereignty. And that's exactly what God gave uh, to these people in this battle. Now, there's another thing in this passage we need to notice, and I've hinted at it already in our introduction, and that is that God's presence is not experienced only or primarily in our emotions. This is a huge mistake that evangelicals make all the time. They think if they're not having mountaintop experiences all the time, that God is not present in their lives, and they get discouraged. They get very depressed. And it's the mountaintop experience syndrome that I think governs so much worship planning and modern worship services and seminars and conferences. And what it does is it sets people up for disappointment and they make people despise the ordinary in God's plans and the ordinary in His presence and His working in our lives. It is not God's will for us to constantly be having mountaintop experiences. You know, some of the greatest leaders down through history, you read their biographies and you will see many of them were very, very steady in their emotions. They didn't have these huge highs and huge lows of depression. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to have highs and lows. Okay, that's sometimes a personality issue. What I'm saying is don't confuse that with God's presence. Notice the emotional high that accompanies this program for advancing God's kingdom in verse 5. And when the Ark of the, when the, Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. What an emotionally charged place this must have been. I've been in rock concerts where my insides were just quivering from the, from the music. I'm never going back. I, I'm almost getting deaf, you know, from there. But there is something about that. You know, you're in a, a stadium of, you know, 4,000 people singing. There is something that's very emotionally charged about it. Here it says, this shout was so loud it made the ground shake. In fact, the Philistines... When they heard this, 
Uh, they just assume, they interpret it in verses 6 through 7 as if God is present with them. That's the pagan way. That's the lucky charm way. The text says, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Now being lucky charm people, verse 7 makes sense. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For such a thing has never happened before. Now, wouldn't it be really neat if we had at Dominion Covenant Church such emotionally charged services that when unbelievers came in, they would just be overcome emotionally. They would realize there's something different about us. And I would say, no, don't be too sure. Don't be too sure about that. We do not want their experience of Christianity to be based upon emotions. We want them to have, yes, Word and experience, but it's got to be experience regulated by the Word of God. And uh, sure, we do want to sanctify our emotions to the Lord, but we don't want to base anything on our emotions. And point one, I want to highlight here is that the heathen were affected by this awesome display in such a way that it made stadium-based emotion pale into insignificance. I mean, surely we would say... God must be fighting for Israel. I mean, these guys are shaking the planet. You know, God's with them. They're on fire for the Lord. Even the devil is quaking in his boots. You know, they're taking the name of the Lord upon them. They're lifting up a standard. Well, God reminds these people that His presence is experienced in accordance with His Word in blessing and in cursing. Verse 9, Philistines respond by saying, Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines but you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Even though they were afraid, God made sure they fought because Israel needed to be taught a lesson. Truth was too important for God to let this counterfeit uh, vaccine survive. And in the ensuing battle, 30,000 soldiers die. The, the two pastors and their dad are, are, are killed. They die. And the worst of all, the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the pagans and Phineas's wife, as she dies, names her child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. Now, if we were living back then, we might have been tempted to say, yeah, the glory has departed. God has completely left us. What is going on here? But we'd be mistaken if we said Ichabod, the glory has departed. God was powerfully present to deliver his people from their sins. He had, he had previously promised in Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He had not left them. In fact, he was powerfully present in that battle to bring covenant discipline and covenant judgments upon them. That's why those soldiers uh, had died there. And I think it's a very, very important to remember God is always present with his people in either blessing or cursing. When you take part of the Lord's table, God is always present and he guarantees there's always going to be one of two outcomes, cursing or blessing. Always. Some of you have been week after week progressively more and more cursed. Some of you week after week have progressively become more and more blessed by the Lord. But it's inevitable that this will happen. One commentator, Dale Davis, said, One must be careful not to miss the way God is working here. It is easy to be wrapped up in the bloodiness of Israel's defeat, in the tragedy of the ark's capture, in the blot on Yahweh's reputation, the one becomes blind to the fact that in the middle of all this, Yahweh is clearly but quietly fulfilling a word he had spoken. Indeed, though in fulfilling this word he acts in judgment, he nevertheless acts in grace. For in his judgment he is removing false shepherds who caused his people to go astray. In other words, this was a wonderful demonstration of the Lord's love in discipline. And so this is one of many, many passages that indicates God is not... He's not very happy. He's not very thrilled with American-style revival. When God moves powerfully in genuine revival, it is to convict with sin, to discipline His people, to destroy the idols of chapter 5. In fact, I love the way Dagon falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. His head falls off. His arms break off. It's to show God is in the idol-destroying business and He allows them to be defeated in this battle. Why? Because they need discipline. He wants His glory to be lifted up. He wants them to come to a place where they see the Word as the only foundation, the only sure thing in life. He wants to 
doesn't put people like Samuel into position, leaders who will lead his people into reformation. Now, very quickly, let's go through just a few of the evidences of reformation in chapter 7. Here's some of the hints here. In verse 2, it says, All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This speaks of thoroughgoing repentance. It's no longer just a, a remnant who are repenting of their sins. All Israel is repenting of their sins. They're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. God's Spirit has engendered within them the kind of repentance that is needed. This is something I pray every day, that God would bring the whole church to a thoroughgoing repentance. And I, let me tell you something. If He could expect that in 1 Samuel, you know, centuries before the crucifixion and Pentecost, He can certainly do it today. The second indicator of a reformation is in chapter 7, verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord. So this is a thoroughgoing pursuit of God. They've put away the encumbrances and all of the hindrances that are out there. What God has brought them to is a place where they can say, as the, in the words of Revelation 14, they were willing to follow the Lamb wherever He went. Wherever He went. And uh, they're casting off the compromises, and we need to cast off the same compromises. Compromises in science, psychology, sociology, civics, family, courtship, health, finances, eating, studies, anything else. And this is why Second Chronicles says this is one of the most thoroughgoing reformations to happen until the time of Josiah. Third thing we see in verse 3 is the phrase, and serve him only. Now, it takes a sovereign moving of God's Spirit to bring us to a place where we're not going to serve ourselves. We're going to serve others. We're more interested in their interests than we are in our own. It takes a sovereign moving of God's Spirit uh, to bring politicians to a place where they're not doing their stuff as men-pleasers. They're doing it to serve God. As Romans 13 says, being ministers of God. When you see families, churches, and culture serving God only, you know massive reformation is happening. And it did indeed happen. Verse 4 says, So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. This is my heart's desire. The church would serve God only. And of course, that reference to putting away Baals and Ashtaroths means they're putting off any competitive systems of thought. This is why every Reformation that's ever happened is accompanied by Christian education. Without exception. It's always accompanied by Christian education. If you are engaging in public education or even in your homeschooling, you are primarily looking at the pagans, automatically you are bringing the Baals and the Ashtaroths right into your home. That's exactly uh, what is happening. So Reformation is characterized by the slogan Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Solo Christo, Solo Fide, Sole Deo Gloria. What they're saying with those solas is we don't want any competition with God in the Bible. Okay? Now, I'm not going to take the time to show this, but in the next few verses of this chapter, we see that all governments are put under God's law. Self-government is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, self-discipline. It's a disciplining under God's grace and under His law so that we follow His law. Family government is not independence. It's relating the family to all of the other governments that God has given. Too many homeschooling families are self-absorbed and self-centered in the way in which they engage in their Christianity. Okay? And true reformation will do the opposite. It's going to give us a passion to serve. In fact, one of the things we've done with our kids right from earliest times. We've involved them in some ministry that's not going to benefit our family. Why? Because we're trying to teach them we need to get out. We need to not be wrapped up just in ourselves. Church government is not building a pastor's ego or his empire. What is it? It's shepherding the sheep of God. It's shepherding the families according to the, the, the limited government patterns that the Scripture gives. And the limited civil government that this passage speaks of could only be possible if all of the other governments had reformation happening to them as well. You know, Samuel did not set up a centralized government. In fact, it's so decentralized, some people think it's libertarianism. It is not libertarianism. It is limited government under God's law, but it's so limited it will not work unless all of the other governments are also uh, brought to reformation. 
And so my charge to you on this Reformation weekend is to believe God for a Reformation greater than any Reformation that has ever happened in human history. Isaiah 52, 8, for example, does not call us to imagine a time in the future when, okay, Christians will finally get together on the fundamentals. It says, no, they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. It's not unbiblical to pray that there would be a unity of truth and practice for the church worldwide. <coughs> Ephesians 4, 12 through 16 says, Eventually, quote, we all will come to the unity of the faith, to a mature man, and we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. What he's saying is it's perfectly biblical to pray for unity in doctrine, unity in practice, and it's going to happen in history. Sometime in history. Now, if Samuel could believe God for true reformation, we've got far greater reasons to believe God today as well. And it's not unbiblical to pray that every level of magistrate in America would kiss the sun and would uh, follow after him. Psalm 72, Isaiah 62 says, all magistrates at some point in history are going to be following Christ. They're going to be serving him faithfully. So don't just pray for revival. That's only asking God to take us back in the past, Lord. Take us back in the past. No, pray for future reformation such as this world has never seen. See, our God is such a big God. I think He is honored by great and big requests, impossible requests that honor His greatness. In fact, what was it? Yesterday in my uh, devotions, I was reading through my Greek Bible and I came across one of the titles for God. It's uh, Megaleotes, greatness, greatness, majesty says in verse 10 that the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines and overcame them. May He thunder once again against His enemies in our day. Amen. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You are powerful enough to bring the kind of reformation that You have put in our hearts to long for. And Father, I pray that You would begin with us. Begin with a revival of the former things, but take us beyond that into full-scale reformation where not a one of us would hold out on anything that Your Word has to say. May we be thoroughgoing in our repentance and thoroughgoing in our pursuit after You and pursuit after the application of Your Word. And Father, bless this Your people. Bless them with hope. Bless them with faith. Bless them with encouragement that uh, You really do have for them a, a hope and a future that uh, they, can, they can bank upon. And I pray, Father, that no matter how dark the days may appear to, uh, uh, around us here in America, that we would not grow discouraged. We would see Your living hand of bringing discipline into the church and that uh, we ourselves would uh, get on board with this and instruct the church in the ways in which we can shorten the times of discipline and enter into the times of reformation. We desire to see Your name glorified and the kingdom of Jesus exalted. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.